I want to just uh, start this morning by uh, introducing our series again. Uh, we're going through a series on the Holy Spirit. So we're continuing this series. And if you've been with us, some of the passages that we've read from John 3, in John 3 we read that he who has been born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 6, Jesus says that the Spirit is the one who gives life, and therefore these words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In Romans chapter 8, Paul calls the Spirit the Spirit of life. And in Galatians, we read that he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So whatever this series is about, we have to say that it's about new life. That this is a series, the Holy Spirit series, is about new life. Now, one thing I've learned uh, in our first year here at King's Chapel is that this is a church teeming with new life. There are little kids and there are babies everywhere. We seem to know how to make babies around here. We're, we're pretty good at it. And there's no, more babies on the way. And if you were to go back down that hallway back there, uh, where the nursery and the toddlers are. Well, what if we were to take David Hildebrandt's community group? Now, that's a, that's a group that's not necessarily what we do, you would call new life. They're the more well-seasoned group in our church. And so if you were to spend time in their community group, it might feel a little different than if you were to walk down the toddler and children wing right now. What would you expect in that wing? You'd expect there to be noise and chaos and confusion. And you'd expect it to be bustling and vibrant and energetic and loud and kind of chaotic. Why? Well, we expect that wherever there's new life. Last week, Andrew took us through uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 2. At the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost. And uh, things are a little crazy. Things are a little chaotic because there's new life. And what's the first thing that you think about when you think about Pentecost? You probably think about people speaking in tongues. It was crazy. It was chaotic. It was noisy. But what we're going to look at this morning is the passage at the end of Acts 2. And what I'd like to suggest is that the things that you begin seeing happening in the life of the church, where there is new life, are even crazier than people speaking in tongues. The things that start to play out in the life of the community is wild, it's chaotic, it's energetic, it's vibrant, and it's noisy. It makes such a noise that the world around it can't help but take notice, and there's transformation. So we're going to look at Acts 2, 42 through 47. It's in your bulletin. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 37 when I read uh, and this is the birth of the new church of Jesus Christ. There's new life here. And so I'm going to start in verse 37. It will be on the screen. It's not in your bulletin. But this is at the end of the sermon that Peter preached. And uh, when he preached, he preached the reality of Christ, the reality of Christ sent, the reality of Christ crucified, the reality of Christ ascended, and now the Holy Spirit poured out by the Father. And so we start in verse 37, it's on the screen, and it said, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking hearts, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together as we uh, prepare our hearts and, and ask God to be with us this morning. So, Heavenly Father, um, we long for your words to abide in us this morning. We long for you to speak to our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts and our lives, that we would be attentive, that we would be receptive that we would be submissive to the authority of your word. And Lord God, that as we submit, we would experience new life. Now, as we look at this passage, it's going to be convicting for us because you're asking for and calling for a type of devotion, which all of us would say we fall short of. But would you give us new power and new eyes to see the source of where our devotion comes from, namely Christ and your devotion to us. We need to be encouraged by that. We need to be reminded by that, of that, and to be empowered by it this morning if we're to have any hope of looking like this community that you intend us to be. So, so make it real. Be in our midst. Holy Spirit, breathe new life on us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, so there's no place more chaotic than inside a delivery room when a new baby is being born, right? At least that's how I felt 16 years ago when my daughter was about to be born. Uh, I remember thinking, I hope somebody around here knows what they're doing. And the good news is that a good OB, a good pediatrician, they all have a series of protocols and procedures that they're very careful to follow in the midst of all of that noise and chaos. Since 1952, we've called it the APGAR test. As soon as a baby's born, we're looking at five things. A, appearance. P, pulse. G, grimace. We're looking at A, activity, and R, respiration. And based on the score of that infant, the pediatrician immediately begins to put together a specific plan that is geared towards one thing, the health, the life, and the vitality of that particular child. The passage that we just read, Acts chapter 2, is the neonatal intensive care unit of God for his church. This is his plan. This is the environment of God for the nurturing and care of newly birthed saints. Uh, 
How do we know that? Well, because in Acts 2.41, it says that on that day, there was about 3,000 people that were added to their number. About 3,000 souls. And what were they added to? Who is the there that they they were added to? Specifically, according to the text, it says that they were added to a spirit-filled community of believers who were marked by one thing, right devotion. And that right devotion expressed itself in three ways primarily, to the apostles' teaching so that they would rightly know Christ. Their right devotion was to living life with God's people in richly shared communion and commonality. And there was this devotion to worship that characterized this community. Now, implicitly and indispensably, that is the church of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't use that word here, church, but it is the reality of this passage taking shape. So if you would allow me to say it this way, the greatest physician, God himself, and I want to say this directly, the moment that 3,000 are born, he does not say, go to the golf course, go to a tree stand, go out on a fishing boat, take a mountain walk on a trail. And I say those things because over the years, I've heard so many people say about those examples, that's my church. But what, what God says to us here is that I'm going to put them into a community that has one overarching, unmistakable, defining characteristic, and that's that they are rightly devoted, that they love and value the things that I love and value, and they have this unique ability to duck and dodge the things that I do not like and the things that I do not value. They are rightly devoted. Now, there's plenty of places that we can find devotion. We can find devotion at the gym. We can find devotion at work. We can find devotion at SunTrust Park or Mercedes-Benz Stadium. When I was at North Georgia, uh, I had the opportunity to work as a chaplain with the men's soccer team. And the head coach and I got to be really good friends. And he was a great guy. But what he told me is, I have to be really careful these days, because in the culture that we live in, as a coach, I can demand devotion, and people will just absolutely give it, because we live in a culture now where coaches can demand absolute devotion to their sport, and we say, okay, I'm in. I remember playing on a high school team, and one of, our, uh, one of my teammates was asking for the coach, hey, coach, you know, there's this, like, significant family moment that's coming up for us. There's this anniversary, and I I just want to take one night off of practice to be able to be with the family. It's kind of a big deal. And the coach was like, no way. You are committed. You signed up for this team. If you're going to be on the team, you got to be on the team. And the the kid was like, wait, I signed up? What, What did I sign up for? I'm, like, third string. I don't even play. I mean, where, where did I sign? I don't understand. What am I supposed to do? No, this is a commitment you made. You signed up for the team. You're either on it or you're not. And our culture has become one of which where, hey, if, if, if we say it, the coach says it, you got to be there. And we say, okay, we, let us play. But here's, here's God saying there's a new kind of devotion, a devotion that's going to mark my community of spiritually birthed people this devotion of deep delight and drive towards the things that I love. Now, the word for devotion in verse 42, if you have your bulletin, you can see 
uh, the different passages, parts of the passage I'm going to look at. But it says they devoted themselves. And that word is kind of a tricky word in the Greek to pronounce. But what it really means is steadfast. It means that we're faithful and we're constant towards something. It means there's a part of my life that just doesn't stop. I don't stop for anything. And so this devotion means that I give myself to some things and to some people in a way that's not sporadic or periodic or sort of all over the place, but it's consistent and it's regular. It doesn't mean that it's perfect, but this word for devotion means that it's prevailing. It finishes what it started. And so that, what that means then is that this neonatal intensive care unit called the church is not just for young people. It's not just for the person who's been a Christian for five minutes or for five years. The devotion that's to mark us as a church of God is to be for the person who's 50 years into their faith and that you would continue to see signs of new life cropping up in their life. That's right devotion. And so right off the bat, number one, what are they, de- what are they devoted to? It's the teaching of the apostles to know their Savior, to know Christ, to know the Word of God. And so what's interesting about this passage to me is that what you're seeing here uh, is something that's not prescriptive, meaning nobody is telling these people, go get in God's Word, go get around the apostles' teaching. But instead, the way, and it's not that those things aren't commanded, generosity, hospitality, the things you see in in this passage, They are commanded in other places in Scripture, but the way that it's presented and packaged here is descriptive, meaning that the Spirit of God shows up, and then this is what happens in their life. Community, generosity, hospitality, and this hunger for the Word of God. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2 like this, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. That's the same thing. It's descriptive. Nobody has to tell a baby, hey, be hungry for your mother's milk. It's factory installed. It comes built in. The baby must have it. They don't need to be trained. And so one of the ways that we can tell, am I just a church attender or have I actually been added to the number, is is there a healthy craving in my life for the Word of God, for the apostles' teaching What is the apostles' teaching? If you look at the passage here in chapter 3, or I'm sorry, in this passage, right before it, we mentioned that Peter's preaching a sermon. It's he's teaching. And then in chapter 3, right after that, we have another sermon. And so we have bracketed around chapter 2, our passages, our two sermons. And what are those sermons about? They're about Christ, who he is, what he did, what he said, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They said, Christ sits on the throne right now next to God, praying for you, interceding for you. It means that when they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to knowing Christ. They wanted to know Christ better, who he is, what he did, what he promised, and how his promises and words would shape their life and change their life and their affections and their choices. Jesus becoming more and more real to them. Now, if you've been around, you know we, uh, we, we talk about Tim Keller a lot. We quote from Tim Keller all the time. We love Tim Keller. Uh, actually, Tim Keller does the same thing. He just does it with C.S. Lewis. And so 
uh, he has sort of been accused on a couple of occasions by his congregants. They say, you know, we can tell you weren't as prepared as you usually are because all your quotes this morning were from C.S. Lewis. Usually when you're on the ball, you've got a whole list of great illustrations and commentary from other pieces, uh, people and places. But this morning it was just C.S. Lewis. And he kind of laughs and he understands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason he says that is is because he loves C.S. Lewis. He's read everything by C.S. Lewis. He's listened to all the audio recordings that are out there about C.S. Lewis. And what he says is that when you start to do that, then C.S. Lewis, about anybody, that C.S. Lewis starts to sort of get in you. And not only do you know what he said, but you start to almost imagine like what C.S. Lewis would say in a given situation. It's really strange. So listen to what Keller says about this thought. He says, what then would be the effect if we were to dive even more deeply into Jesus's teaching and life and work? What if we were to be so deeply immersed in his promises and summonses, his counsels and encouragements that they dominated our inner life, captured our imagination, and simply bubbled out spontaneously when we face some challenge? How would we live if instinctively, almost unconsciously, we knew Jesus' mind and heart regarding things that confronted us? Perhaps when you received criticism, you wouldn't be crushed because Jesus' love and acceptance of you is so deeply in there. When you gave criticism, you would be gentle and patient because your whole inner world would be saturated by a sense of Jesus' loving patience and gentleness with you. That's what it looks like when someone has begun to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Word of God, that they've so dug in and saturated themselves in it, that, that they've taken like we said, like we took John 15 this morning. It's like you take John 15 and you hold it up in the light, and in that light it says, Look at this. Here, Jesus says that as the Father loved me, so I love you. Amazing. Look, Jesus here in John 15, he says, listen, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And we hold that promise and that truth up. And we begin to chew on it and to think about it until the promises that are offered there become more real to the fears and the insecurities and the struggles and the places that would otherwise dominate you. I have to do that every single day, all day long. All day long. Are you doing that? Are you digging in? Even this morning, I think why my deodorant is working is because I held on to some promises this morning. It's not about your word, my, my word to these people. It's about your word abiding in their hearts. Praise God. What do I have to be afraid of? You're here. You're present with your people. That's what it looks like. It's digging in, meditating, spending the time. That can't happen when you just open up your Bible for five minutes in the morning and hope for a little inspiration to carry you throughout the day. And it can't happen by just coming to hear the great preacher on Sunday. We got to be men and women who are in the word, craving the word, devoted to the word. It marks us. That's right devotion. Number two, what's the second sign of right devotion? It's that 
We're living life with God's people in richly shared communion and commonality. Some people would say, hey, you kind of belabored that sentence. You could have just said fellowship. That's the same thing. Well, actually, I had a seminary professor who wouldn't even let us use the word fellowship anymore. In the passage, it's koinonia. He said, you can't use fellowship anymore because fellowship is a word that's been taken out behind the woodshed and absolutely blown up in church culture. So now that the way that the American church thinks about church culture is basically pizza and proximity. Wherever there's pizza, food, and the people of God are in proximity with one another, we can call that fellowship. I don't know how it happened. I think it was a youth pastor somewhere. Um, not our youth pastor, because Avery knows more about koinonia and the languages than I do. But somewhere a youth pastor said, you know what? Pizza! Everybody show up! And it wouldn't matter if that was the worst hour of a kid's life. Railing each other and sarcasm and ripping each other to shreds. There was pizza, and we were close to each other, so fellowship. <laughs> Actually, uh, that's why my seminary professor said he would it. But, you know, the, the, the truth of this passage, the truth of this word, koinonia, there is so much that's packed in here together. Um, I just want to kind of read certain sections of our passage. So if you have your bulletin, you know, and, and you have the passage or your Bible, Start in verse 42. I just want to look at the braids that are, that are here and are held together. So let's look at some of these. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. So therefore, fellowship has to be intentional. Like if there's devotion in my life, I'm prioritizing one thing over the other with my time and my resources. That means intentionality. So there's intentionality with koinonia. All, verse 44, all who believed were together. So it's not just intentional, but it's also universal. The whole group, continuing in verse 44, they had everything in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any who had need. And so this fellowship wasn't just theoretical. Oh, that sounds really good. They actually went home and did something about it. It was practical and sacrificial. It says in verse 46, and day by day, so it's continual, they were breaking bread in their homes. In their homes, that means it's hospitable, with glad and sincere hearts, verse 46. And so that means it's also emotionally transformational. So I want to unpack just a couple of the ideas there. I'm not going to look at all of them, but... But here's where we get this idea that if you thought that speaking in tongues was crazy, what you're about to see here is even far more, uh, far more wild because it says uh, that all the believers were together. That doesn't really seem like a big deal unless we remember who we're talking about here. This is what Andrew read last, year, last week at the beginning in uh, Acts 2, 8 through 11. Who is this all? Well, it was... Parthians and Elamites and Judeans, and Judeans and Asians and Africans and Romans and Arabs. They were the ones that were together, Jews and Gentiles. And, it, and so even a cursory reading of history would show you these people didn't get along very well. They thought differently politically, culturally, about the world. And suddenly, in a day, they're together. Students, you can barely imagine sitting at the lunch table at school with somebody that you don't know 
And, and here's people who are a different age in life, who see the world differently, who think differently, and suddenly they're, they're moving towards one another. Different social bearing, different stage in life, different status, intentionally moving towards together, towards one another. Who does that? Who, who in the world does that? Nobody does that. And then there was this sense that it wasn't just a one-time deal. Like they didn't kind of rally up for the unity conference. It was continual. And that doesn't mean that 3,000 people walked around as a single unit uh, in, in public, but it meant that wherever they went in public and private life, there was a sense that, look at the people of God. They're over there at Gallery Row doing Bible study. They're on the green belt running together. They're setting up play dates with their kids. They're having small groups. They're inviting people into their homes. They're walking around the campus and praying. Look at them. They're everywhere all the time. They're in church on Sunday together. This is amazing. It wasn't periodic or sporadic or random. It was rhythmic, a part of the fabric of their lives. Is this stuff crazy? This is crazy. Sacrificial. They sold their possessions to anyone who had need. Bruce Waltke says in his commentary, it's, it is normal in fellowship for me to disadvantage of myself for the advantage of you. And it's normal for you to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of me. That's the nature of biblical community. That suddenly we become this group of people who say, it's just not mine, it's yours too. Who does that? Well, when you're in a family and you live under one household, nobody says, that's my table. That's my chair. I don't go to my kids and say, that's my gallon of milk. <laughs> what is it in a family? This is all ours. We share. This kind of stuff only happens in a family. And it's practical. They had everything in common. Hey, there's two things that we don't really like to have in common. I'm going to be honest. It's things that are private and things that are property. Nobody likes to have those things in common. I don't want you to know my weaknesses. That's private. I don't want you to know my failures. That's private. I don't want you to know my struggles. That's private. I don't want you to know that I don't know how to be single. I don't want you to know that I don't know how to be married. I don't want you to know that I don't know how to be a middle-aged man. I don't know how to be a good parent. I don't know how to be a good Christian. That's all private, right? But here, they shared it. They were sharing these things. And our property, our stuff, how many times have you heard, how many times have you heard yourself say, I just can't let people come into my house. It's too, ah, it's too fill in the blank. They shared it. But it's far easier to go on looking like we have it together than to go, actually go through the process of being put back together by Jesus through spirit-filled community. I'd rather act like I have it all together, that my house is all together, that you think of me as all together, than to actually go through the process of being put back together by the Holy Spirit in this community of believers, which is what he has designed and plugged his new life Christians into for their thriving. I'd rather just appear to have it all together there's a great quote by a Christian counselor named Paul Tournier who says, the greatest obstacle in the way of real acceptance is the appearance of acceptance. The greatest obstacle in the way of real humility is the appearance of humility. 
The greatest obstacle to real faith is the appearance of faith and the greatest obstacle in the way of holiness, of real holiness, is the appearance of holiness. And so devotion to fellowship means that pretty soon, if you're going to get real with somebody, then appearances, well, they have to disappear because you can't be with someone in real ways without first becoming thoroughly unimpressed with yourself, without being willing to take off the masks. And yet when you take off the mask and you reveal what's behind the mask to somebody else who is a spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ, and what they reciprocate to you is not, ooh, gross, but instead they move towards you and they say, you may have just shared with me one of the hardest things that you've ever said or some things that are very real, but I want you to know that I struggle too. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to put my arm around you and I'm going to stick by you. And we're going to walk through life together and I'm going to continue to point you to the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. I'm with you. And when you experience that, having taken off the mask and been real with somebody, something happens that is incredibly life-giving. It energizes you. It brings about joy. So I get it. We're terrified of the risk of fellowship. But what Luke is telling us here is that the, the first church took a chance because of what they experienced in the body of Christ. And as they did, they were infused with new life and the world around them could not believe it. They were in awe. They were in wonder. And so when you are exposed to Christ and his people in true fellowship, guess what you get a taste of? You get a taste of Eden. You go back to Eden, to the garden. You're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 1611 says, you fill me with joy in your presence. And so Christian community is emotionally transformational. I think that this is actually why the Pharisees pointed at Jesus and said, he's got to be in sin. Something's wrong there. It's because everywhere he went with his people, with his, with his guys, with his group, there was so much joy. They didn't know what to do with it. What is that? The world stands in wonder, which is the last mark of right devotion. Number three, it's the worship of God in vital community. So verse 47 says that they were praising God together and that as these realities uh, were playing out in the midst, uh, they were together. And verse 43 says they were in awe. Awe came upon them. To be in awe of something is to worship something. To be in awe of God is to worship God. And so now, well, there's a lot we could say about this, but I, I want to point out kind of two quick things about this awe. There's this realization. Where does this awe come from in their life? I think the first place that this awe comes from is that it's Christ himself has come through his spirit. Their devotion, I'll say it another way, their devotion is rooted in, so their devotion, their worship is rooted in the devotion of God. So where do we see that? Well, we've just preached Christ in chapter 2. Now, when we devote something, what are we doing? In essence, we're giving it away. But in John 17, when Christ was about to be crucified, he prayed a prayer in front of his disciples. Later on in this semester, we're going to walk through that prayer. 
But in the prayer in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, you have sent me into the world. You've given me. You've given me to the world. And he says, and for their sake, I sanctify myself. And the word sanctify there is the word that we have for devotion. I devote myself. And so what that means is that Jesus says, for their sake, I empty myself of glory. For their sake, I become one of no reputation so that they can have a name with God. I become ugly so that they may become beautiful. I have the Father turn his face away from me so that his face would be upon them. So when God gives himself away, he gives himself to us. He gives himself us. That's what Augustine said at the bottom of your, of your bulletin. The great gift of God is God gives us God. Is that amazing? And they're in awe of that. Ezekiel 39, 29, the prophet saw this day. He envisioned it. And he said, I will hide my face no longer, the Lord says, for I will pour out my spirit upon them. When we have the spirit, it means we have the face of God. And we have that because of Christ's devotion for us. Now, only so far as we understand the devotion of Christ and meditate upon the devotion of Christ can we be transformed as they were. And that's the realization of this community as well. I think the second thing that this community realizes is that, can you believe it? This is happening in our midst. So when they saw the apostles doing these signs and wonders, they said, that's the things that Jesus was doing. And now they're happening in our lives. We, the extraordinary is happening through the ordinary. This is unbelievable. How is this happening? It's tax collectors. It's uneducated. It's the ordinary. It's not the educated, not the elite, not those in power. It's people who are broken, people who ran away when the heat got turned up in their lives and they were tempted. He's working through broken people in a broken world. And so I think that it's easy sometimes for us, for me, to think, you know, this kind of thing happens in a place with pristine cultural conditions, in a country that hasn't screwed it up bad enough, in a world that hasn't gone off the rails. The nation's values haven't been so corrupted yet. That can't happen here. Actually, it's the exact opposite because all this happened in Jerusalem. And if there was ever a place in the world that had rejected God time and time again, Jerusalem was the epicenter for rejecting God time after time, second chance after second chance. It's the whole story of the Old Testament. And yet, beginning in chapter 1, we see that one of Jesus' disciples betrays him and commits suicide. And then, the crowd accuses the disciples of being drunk. They're dismissed. They're mocked by the culture around them. You ever feel like that as a Christian in our culture? Mocked, dismissed? Two chapters later, the disciples are arrested, persecuted. And a couple chapters after that, some of these beautiful, spirit-led community church members start skimming off the top of the offering plate. And they're put to death in the narthex, just executed. Like, this is not the perfect, pristine church of God. And we imagine that's where the Spirit would come. There's actually quite a bit of fallenness. There's quite a bit of the world. There's quite a bit of mess. And yet, God still comes 
right in the midst of it. That brings awe. They stand in wonder that God could continue to do that. And that devotion, what that produces is a devotion, a devotion that Christ could bring about a prevailing community. And that prevailing community would be a place that says, therefore, I'll never draw lines and say, this far, God, can I imagine you going in my life? Well, you know, it's, I know we're supposed to forgive, but that is too much to forgive. Um, I've seen too much. I've been around church for too long. I'm too old. I'm too tired. And honestly, I just don't think that I have what it takes to go through this reconciliation and to see this kind of new life born in me. What this passage tells us is that, hey, this is exactly why Christ has come. This is exactly for the people he's come for, is to continue to bring about prevailing, spirit-filled devotion and new life that anywhere that the people of God practice what this people were doing, repentance and faith, that's what the passage says, what happens? They were cut to the heart. They heard it and they said, there's something there I want to respond to. So what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. This is what Jesus said when he came out of the wilderness. It's basically the same thing. He went about preaching the good news of the kingdom, of the gospel, and said, repent and believe. It's the same It's the same framework, that when the framework of my life becomes one of repentance and belief and faith in Christ, that the same spiritual dynamics that are at play in this community are available and accessible for me right now and for you too. It's never too late. We're never too far gone. That relationship has never gotten to a point that can't be redeemed. Because why? Because we're dealing with God himself, with the spirit of God. He is calm. And wherever there's repentance and faith, he floods our lives with grace and renewal and new life. So this isn't just like a one-time thing that we experience as new Christians. And then we go, oh man, I wish I could get back. I mean, I wish I could get back to the enthusiasm I had like back in the day. Maybe then I could believe the way that they believed. You know, Paul says in Colossians 2, he says, uh, therefore, just as you received Christ, think about how they received Christ right here. Repentance and faith. Therefore, just as you received Christ, continue to walk in him. So walk in him, rooted and established in your faith, and built up in him. That means that the things that I was doing this morning as I was praying and preparing my heart were the same exact things I was doing on day one when I came to Christ. Lord, I long for the approval of people, and I'm insecure when I don't have it. And I think that if my fraternity brothers back then or this congregation would bring me in and love me, that that's where life is to be found. But repentance, no, it's not. It's not. Your love is better, and your righteousness covers over me. And because of your righteousness, I have the smile and the love and the face of God. 
and his spirit fills me. That's how our church is renewed. And do you realize that that is not meant to happen in isolation? That that is meant to happen as we are together, universally, continually, sacrificially, with hospitality, practically, day by day, in rhythm with one another. It's amazing. The bride of Christ. It's amazing. Now, this has a ton of implications about group life. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about group life for our upcoming ministry year, community groups, small groups, men and women's discipleship groups. And I just want to ask you, as a family, would we be praying, God, help us to be intentional. Help us to express it the way that you would long for it to be expressed, the way we see it playing out in this passage. But apart from your spirit, it's not going to happen. So let's pray. Father, Father, we need you. We long for you. We long to experience new life and new birth and the signs of life that your spirit gives because we realize that the more and more that we come in rhythm with your Holy Spirit, the more joy there is, the more we know you, and the more we experience what you've originally intended us for, the more we tap into our purpose, and the more we get to be light, salt and light, for the world around us. Uh, Lord, we, we confess that our devotion to these things has waned. Um, but Lord, we need you, and we believe that your promises are true for us, and it's through your great promises as we meditate and appropriate them that we become partakers of the divine nature. So help us to partake this morning, even as we come to the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.